Hello, Russell. What's hey. your favorite scary movie? Ooh, quite like elevated horror, it turns out. Hello, James. Do you like scary movies? Uh, yeah, but the scariest movie is my life. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> well, that's always got to be true. And the really scary question is, how long will I keep the voice going? Hello, listeners. It's Invasion of the Potty People and Vincent was being uh, Ghostface because today we're going to talk all things screaming a bit because... Ah! Exactly. Ah, there's a stonking new installment in Scream. It's finally got the requel treatment, which is a term I learned about through the new Scream. So, you know, hey, hey. Uh, but first we're going to chat awards. We're going to chat about all things awards because coming up very soon are the Oscars. Annual tradition where, you know, films get elevated to the heights of green book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, so on the 27th of March is the Oscars. And I thought we'd chat a little bit about horror with the awards, what we think about the continued snubbing of horror and also, you know, if horror needs the awards, if it needs the Academy Awards. So this is kind of inspired by people's love of Tatan. I think that's how you say it, or Tatane, however you say the French film. Tatan, let's go Tatan. I like Tatan. And the fact that it was France's entry for best international film and it has not landed into the long list. So it's probably horror's great hope for this year, Extinguished. And it happens every... Every year there'll be a horror film or a horror performance we'll all embrace. You just think of Tony Collette and Hereditary uh, that we really want to get nominated. We really think should be up there with the best of the best because they tend to be really interesting films or performances or scripts or anything really. And the Academy doesn't really like horror. The last horror to win something was Get Out for Best Screenplay. And that felt almost like, uh, yes, we think Get Out is good, but let's move on. Uh, yeah. So, firstly, are you guys sad that there will be no horror representation this year at any awards, major awards ceremony? Yes. I'm sad in the sense that what we can see in that, in these uh, listings, is the continuation of um, what, of cultural elitism. Cultural elitism in the relation to award-giving bodies like AMPAS and BAFTA in an emphasis upon particular genres over others. Um, I've done some statistical studies of Oscar winners and, um, the, and, and you can actually identify the formula of an Oscar nominee, um, best picture nominee. Um, the, they will generally be um, involves 20th century history is the most common denominator. And note when there have been somewhat more uh, unusual winners, they've still managed to incorporate that Okay, it may not ne- technically be a horror film, but certainly it's one could consider The Shape of Water to be horror adjacent. Mm. It also happens to be very much a Cold War film, um, to use that example. So having said that, of course, I mean, there's always there's the nominations and then there's the winners. And I, my, my feeling is that the nominees often end up being an interesting bunch. And then the eventual winner, certainly for the Oscars, in recent years has often been quite surprising. But it is indeed 
unfortunate that uh, we're not we're not seeing much in the way uh, of horror recognition. Although I will say it is at least nice to see science fiction recognition with the attention being paid to Dune. So I, I take comfort in that, but I like to see horror in there as well. James. Yeah, absolutely. Like Dune is the closest we're going to get to a genre film getting representation. It's in. It's pretty likely that Dune will be a Best Picture nominee and uh, it's probably one of the favourites to get a Best Director nomination and it will clearly clean up at the technicals the technical side of the awards because it is a technical marvel and nightmare alley has an outside shot of getting in for a few award nominations and while it's not a horror but it is horror tinged because it's del toro and del toro is never that far away from being horror tinged and it's a cracking little noir um yeah james do you think that the Academy Awards, do you think horror needs these nominations? It comes up every year. We have the same debate as to why the Academy Awards will not nominate horrors particularly and certainly will not award horrors. I mean, the only real major horror that's been, that's won big prizes is The Silence of the Lambs. And that's debatable if it's a horror. It's probably a horror in its uh, design and mise-en-scene than it is in terms of its narrative more than anything. So yeah, do you think horror needs the Academy Awards, or do you think it's just the Academy Awards are missing out on a great genre? Um, I don't think horror needs the Academy Awards because horror has always been that plucky little outsider and it's thrived through people loving it and being such adoring fans rather than mainstream outpouring of love. But awards bodies should be recognising the best films of the year across all genres. And it's sad that horror is often left out of the conversation. Even when you've got um, The Silence of Lambs, people this are caught saying, no, no, it's more of a thriller. Or Get Out, I remember during the awards cycle for your consideration stuff, it was being referred to as a social thriller. It's that, <laughs> yeah, the way of peppering it in a way to make it more appealing for Oscar voters without saying the big H, oh my goodness, horror. And uh, there does seem to be a bit more openness as to what gets recognised now. I mean, Best Picture winner Parasite, Man Max Fury, Fury Road won six Oscars, but it does still feel like two, one step forward, two steps back, because the Oscars will go for the safe options and ensure they get more co- coverage which often involves biopics with actors doing a half-hearted impersonation of real-life figure. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, good God. (laughs) And in all honesty, makeup and hairstyling should be a slam dunk for the horror genre. This is where the genre shines. It didn't get a nomination. That astounds me. Dan Martin should especially be getting nominations for his work on Possessor and the like of that. But they're passed over for the more Oscar-friendly dramas like Bombshell and Hillbilly Elegy. And it's sad that you can't even recognise horror in the technical side when you can for the more sci-fi, action-y films that often dominate those technical aspects. It's just unfortunate and horror deserves, horror deserves the recognition, but it doesn't need it because we'll always have horror and the Academy are just missing out. 
Yeah, and like the thing with Par- Parasite and Mad Max Fury Road is that they're both such good films that to not nominate them for things and, and in Parasite's case, to not give it the the best picture seems ludicrous because they are clearly some of the best films of the last 20 years. And in an own way, like I kind of feel that with horror, it kind of thrives by being in the shadows, by being a more indie genre at times. Like, yes, there are big mainstream um installments we're going to talk about one of those later in this episode but the academy is far less interested in what makes the big bucks it's far less interested in what are huge hits i mean i will be surprised if spider-man ends up being nominated it is the talk as is the talk that maybe no time to die might sneak in for a best picture nomination i don't see either of those happening because i it's not i think where the academy is um yeah i i i I'm most sad that some of the performances we watch in horror films never quite get over that hurdle, never quite get over the hurdle of the fact that they are the best performance of the year. And I have issues of hereditary, I have issues of hereditary, but Tony Collette was one of the best performances of that year by a considerable distance. Her performance that is phenomenal and it got near to no recognition in the major awards bodies. And there have been several performances over the last couple of years that have really stood out as, as some fantastic performances. Even if the film has issues, the performances themselves almost elevate the work to a new level. And I don't think we ever quite get to the point where there should there is the recognition of um, those actors. And yes, I would love Dan Martin to be nominated for an Oscar because mm-hmm. the guy is a phenomenal effects worker and it's also would be a wonderful celebration of practical effects that... Yet I think that his practical effects are phenomenal. And in its own way, while the Academy Awards are a industry awards, like any industry they are have awards, I feel that because they're so public, the acknowledgement that practical effects are great would be lovely. But yeah. So my only real sorrow is in the performances that get ignored for some more lackluster performances, frankly. <laughs> well, you say that. Um uh, so thinking about in that regard, I've just um, found, uh, looking at an article on um, from Gold, Gold Derby, so kind of a, um, <laughs> a prediction site. Um, it's got some, the, some predictions for what will be nominated in the major categories. And it, under, under the, in terms of acting, are there any particular performances in um, horror films or genre films more widely in the past year that you think would be particular that you'd be particularly pleased to see up for nominations. Not that you think they will be, but that would be good to see. I mean, I've mentioned once or twice on this podcast my top film of last year was Censor, and I would love to have seen Neve, Neve Algar um, being up for Best Actress. Um, I think she would have uh, been a. I think she'd be very worthy. Having said that, when I look at the predicted nominees for Best Actress in a leading role. There are some heavy hitters. Now, I've actually only seen one of these, but Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, and the one I've seen, Lady Gaga for House of Gucci. Um, I mean, I mean, I thought Lady Gaga was great in House of Gucci. Mm. I didn't think the film was great overall. She was really good in it. And while I've not seen the, the other possible nominees, I am big, a big fan of all of those actors and, you know, I'd be happy for any of them to pick up an award. In the case of Olivia Colman and Nicole Kidman, it would be their 
uh, or the Penelope Cruz actually would be their um, would be their second award. That these are all previous nominees, and I will say I love Jessica Chastain in everything. So you know, <laughs> to see her pick up a win would make me happy. It surprises me that Kristen Stewart for Spencer is seem to have disappeared from the favourites of this, Good especially point. when that especially when that felt so horror twinged in how the film unfolds. It's ah, there it is, horror um, twin. Yeah. Mm. Maybe the horror but, twin, twin, twinge or tinge, <laughs> um, but maybe that's what. Maybe that's why um, it's not, she's not appeared there. Because what I was saying about 20th century history, yeah, Spencer fits perfectly. Mm. Biopic as well, ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I it's not a horror, but it has horror inflections. I love the Green Knight, and I would have loved. I wish it was more part of the conversation. I think Dev Patel gives a stellar performance in that, so I would love him to be part of the conversation. Uh, but I don't. I don't think he'll get anywhere near that. Um, it wasn't this year, but for last year, I mean, while I have reservations of the overall film, I think Moffat Clark in Saint Maud is is a really incredible performance. And maybe yeah. that's where it comes that the best horror works tend to be more indie uh, films. Tend to mm. play to a genre audience or a smaller audience, and the genre audience is not really the audience that's going to vote for these Oscars or help push them forward. I am surprised. I haven't seen Spencer, but I'm surprised that Kristen Stewart has so fallen out of favor. And mm. frankly, I have no idea why Nicole Kidman's in the mix because being the Ricardos is, was a chore. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know what would do well in makeup and hairstyling for this year's nominees? Malignant. Oh Yeah. <laughs> That would uh, that would fit all right. Yeah. Once you get snubbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, like, uh, I guess my thoughts are that most of the voting body is still going to be of an older generation, and I can't see them putting on *Malignant* or *Titan* or even *Last Night in Soho* and being and having fun with it because when they mm. become horrors, when they dip into, I mean, *Malignant* is pure horror, but when like *Titan* or uh, *Last Night in Soho* dips into horror it, i can't see them having much fun with it i mean detain is a wild ride i have very complicated opinions about it but <laughs> at its core it is a proper wild ride and i can't imagine many of the award body going oh now this this is a good friday night watch i wonder if that's actually part of the point because um horror cinema especially has a tendency to produce these sorts of complicated feelings that um on the one hand, we can feel divided about it. Maybe that's one reason that um, horror ha- doesn't have a particularly strong reputation in award circles. And as a result, um, the distributors, the studios behind them, don't put much, um, put, don't, don't put a lot of um, funding into the promotional campaigns because whatever we may want to say about quality, when it comes to film quality, it is subjective. Awards are mm. not really what, how much we want to say. Well, the most, the objectively best film will win. Objectively best film is a contradiction in terms because part of the value will always be determined by the viewer, the, by the experience of viewing it. And therefore, it, um, that which is a safe bet in that regard is going to be that, that which gets the marketing behind it, gets the push. And it does tend to be the same type of films. 
films which don't necessarily prompt these divisive responses that we can look and go, yeah, okay, I, I see what you're doing. The <laughs> predicted nominees for Best Picture, um, The Power of the Dog, okay, yeah, it's a classic Western with some contemporary notions. Okay, easy to see where we're coming from. Belfast, story about the about its childhood experience of a major political event. Okay, got it. West Side Story, you know, big fan of that here. Um, you know, new version of an established classic story of which is Romeo and Juliet. Okay, we get it, and so on. Um, tend to be. I think that's another maybe an important factor in Best Picture nominees: the kind of award fodder that gets put out at this time of year, well, end of the year, into award season. It's a matter of not films that are necessarily going to be divisive. Tends to be a matter of, you can look at this and say, yep, I see where this is coming from. And you may, and you'll either like it or not like it, but you probably won't be conflicted. Whereas something like Titan um, is, and Malignant, I mean, interesting. They're an interesting comparison, actually, because they are, quite different but also have a, certain things in common and one of them is going to be yeah i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> <laughs> and I, I for me that's why i'm surprised that parasite did so well when it did because uh, parasite is a multi-genre complicated beast of a movie while it is a terrific ride it is it, it is complicated it's not quite as simple as that was great or that wasn't. It's, um, I think it's a masterpiece, but it's also got that complicated quality to it that I'm always slightly surprised that this is the film that kind of got over those barriers of being genre and being um, not in English. Yeah. Well, I think the case of Parasite, yes, it was a surprising win, um, especially over what I think many, myself included, anticipated would win that year, 1917. Now, World War One film from a previous uh, Oscar-winning director, um, with the interesting technical trick of making it look like it's all in a single shot, that seemed like a very much a typical Oscar winner, and it had very clear-cut expectations. Like, well, we know who the we know who the good guys are um, in that respect. But what I think, even though Parasite is in many ways more complex than 1917. I wouldn't say it's particularly, I wouldn't say that the complexity is moral. It's not, an, it's not a film that's necessarily going to have you discussing the ethics of it. It's very much saying, oh, look, it's shit being poor. <laughs> and the irony, yeah. of course, is I hope not lost on anybody of the um, Academy, uh, an motion picture arts and sciences, an institution entirely based around wealth and capitalistic um, production and consumption and let's not deny exploitation for them to say yes a film that says it's shit to be poor is one we're going that we feel positively about <laughs> the irony is there but it's a uh, but, but but nonetheless i don't think that the i don't think that <clears throat> parasite is divisive in terms of its politics mm. If there was, uh, James, if there was a horror film in the last 20 years that you wish had been uh, more in the conversation and had mm -hmm. been more nominated, do you have one of those? Of the last 20 years, ooh. Because, I mean, I mean, the last 20 years of horror has been 
some of the best output horror has ever had. Maybe mm-hmm. last 10, but certainly we've had a rich decade of interesting horrors. No, that's very true. Um, in all honesty, I wish Us was in the, Jordan Peele's Us was more in the conversation just for what Lupita Nyong'o does with two performances in the same film, making them feel so vastly different and so well fleshed out and downright terrifying over the course of just a two-hour picture. It's magnificent. And I wish that that at least she got nominated for that, even if nothing else came out of that film. I think that was just such an astounding performance. And it's just a shame it they didn't decide to recognize it really yeah a proper stellar performance from her in in a career i mean she's won an oscar and i feel like she's always a bit underserved by mm. her career like i think she should be one of the biggest performers in the world and should be on our screens two or three times a year because yeah when she is given a great dual role like in us she does phenomenal things with it uh, Vincent, do you have a pick? Um, oh, well, I would certainly agree with um, us. I, I actually prefer us to this uh, <clears throat> to get out, so I would have very much liked to see it. I just um, okay, yeah. In the category of um, international best international film, <laughs> and I may be wrong. Maybe who knows? Maybe it actually was up. I'll have to check this. But let the right one in. Ooh, good call. Mm. Yeah. And actually, for that matter, um, some years later, um, a girl walks home alone at night. Oh. Um, yeah. And that's the other thing is that the best international feature film is often the category that has the best films, because uh, in spite of living in the not too distant uh, future from Parasite winning, still, we're not at a point where uh, those films are treated as equals to their English language ones. Uh, my pick, well, I'll do two picks because I like to cheat, is The Babadook <laughs> and The Witch because I think those are two of the very best horrors and they do so much interesting on both technical and thematic levels. And there's so much in those films and they both rely upon some great performances and great writing, great directing. So uh, though those are two films that I wish should be more in the conversation. I can understand why particularly The Babadook wasn't because The Babadook is a small independent uh, Australian film that has, has only increased in its, its um, uh, awareness of people's awareness of it since its release. But yeah, I would have loved those two to have been in the conversation far more because I think they're two phenomenal films. Yeah. yeah I'd agree with that. Um, yeah. Okay. So fine. And say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried same okay thing. so try again release yourself oh release you you mean yeah fine release me just say it just fucking say it don't you swear at me you little shit don't you ever raise your voice at me i am your mother do you understand but from awards let's move on to something old and new something that's a little bit old and a little bit borrowed and a little bit new shall we talk about scream Okay, well, let's. Um, I've got a couple of things to say, uh, screen wise. Um, we're going to do this chronologically. So, what I'd like to start with, gentlemen, is um, a retrospective on our respective histories with the franchise. Um, after which, um, I have a little game. 
um, which is not exactly movie trivia, but is, you know, not unrelated. Um, and then afterwards, we can go into some maybe deep, uh, a deeper discussion of the new screen, um, for which I shall hand over to my esteemed colleague. Yo. <laughs> uh, most esteemed one. So um, one thing, so, so uh, James, first of all, what's your history <laughs> with the Scream franchise? Well, uh, I have distinct memories of watching the first two Scream films on my crappy little TV in my bedroom at far too young an age. It was some of the earliest horror films I watched and it helped me transition from little guy who's just petrified at the idea of horror to a full-blooded horror fan that I am. And it was very much a helpful gateway for me. Um, and I have a lot of love for Scream 4. It was actually the first horror film I watched in cinemas. I remember taking the train with a mate to go watch it in an afternoon screening. It was like a couple of weeks after it came out and I still hadn't been spoilt about it for me, which doesn't feel like something you get for the current film nowadays, unfortunately. And I have this distinct memory of, it's a near empty screening, just me and my mate, apart from these obnoxious teens in the back who are laughing at every kill as though it was like a punchline in a Will Ferrell comedy. It was fascinating, but it didn't dampen the experience. It didn't dampen how the last act of Scream 4 just blew my mind. And going through these horror films um, recently in preparation for a new one, it's honestly my favourite horror franchise because I think it's just so consistent with with wit and bite and it never reaches the low lows of series like you get from Halloween or Hellraiser. And what I especially love about it is how it doesn't have to undo itself to resurrect Ghostface like the Friday the 13th or Halloween would have to. It can literally be anyone and they craft this mystery out of who's under the mask, what their motivation is. And it's just such a fascinating way to approach it because it's not going to be like, okay, let's see how the past film was bullshit and now Ghostface is resurrected by lightning. No, it's it just feels like every film is it's distinct in its own way. And I think it makes up to a really good franchise. Um, Russell, what's your history with the franchise? Oh, I must have watched as a teenager. So I have the the uh, trilogy box set um, of the the first three films. And I've absolutely watched the first one as a teenager and the second one. And I would have watched the third one before I watched Cursed. So Wes Craven went off and made Cursed, which is a werewolf-like screen film that I haven't watched in years. I remember it not being very good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I have... Um, I don't have quite the fondness for a slasher that I think a lot of horror fans do, if I'm honest. I I think that slashers are fun enough, but they're not my favourite of the subgenres. But I think Scream, it's only the first one, does it in a way that I find endearing. Maybe it is that Agatha Christie quality it has, that there's a mystery of who is doing the killing, that because it's a new killer each time, and I don't think this is a really a spoiler for the new one, but yeah, it's a new killer each time. And so there's that kind of like running through it. Who, who could the killer be? And Ghostface is a relatively human killer. He falls down, he gets hurt, he gets hit with things. He gets knocked out, I believe, in the third and second. And I don't know about the first, I can't remember the first if he does. Uh, yeah, so I, I have fun with them. I hadn't watched them in a few years. And then for this one, 
I watched all of them, including the fourth one, which I hadn't seen before in one day. And it kind of showed the best and worst of the series. And I kind of understood why screen free never really worked for me because it feels both tamer and more complex. Like the kills feel tamer and the complexity of the narrative. Basically, I don't, it never quite coalesces in the right way around the first and second. The first and second feel quite tight. And then the fourth one, I hadn't watched the fourth one before and I really dug the last act, the fourth one. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a bit silly. They're always a bit silly. But yeah, I had I had fun going back through them. So yeah, my history of them is not, I don't love screen films. I'll be honest with you. They're not the franchise for me. I don't know if there is a horror franchise that I am totally devoted to. I love the Final Destination one and Child's Play. I love how it reinvents itself every couple of films. But yeah, I... I had fun going through them up until this one. Um, and they've been, yeah, good, uh, a good friend for a while. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to be, show, I'm going to show my age here <clears throat> as I often do. Um, Scream was the original Scream was the first um, horror film I saw in a cinema, except I didn't see it on its initial release. I saw it a year after its initial release um, at, it was a, I remember very clearly, it was a Freshers um, free film screening in my first year at university. Um, for a while, I actually thought, oh, right, so Scream was a 97 film. No, no, it was a 96 film that, that you know, it's being a like second run thing. Yeah, so I thought, so I saw Scream when I was 18 um, and I had always avoided horror films because I was a massive um, scaredy cat as a kid. Um, I didn't watch any horror films except some that came on TV um, that I didn't really understand. I think I watched The Shining when I was about 15 and it kind of went over my head. I was, <laughs> Watching it more recently, I found it a lot more impressive. But yeah, so that was um, Scream, I think, definitely worked as a gateway for me, although it was a while before I was watching more horror. And then I saw the rest. I saw Scream 2 and Scream 3 on their original theatrical releases. Scream 2 remains significant because it's one of, I think, only three films that have made me scream out loud, <laughs> which is, you know, appropriate, I suppose. Um, and uh, then I didn't see Scream 4 when it came out. I saw it when it was on TV sometime after its initial release. It's like, oh, yeah, Scream 4, let's give this a go. Um, yeah, and then most recently, of course, saw Scream 2022 um, on its uh, release as it is at the moment. And I think I very much like the first one. I've, uh, it, uh, it worked for me. I, I could, even though I didn't get the references, it still worked for me. And I think that's a sign when you've got something which is um, very much a postmodern meta homage um, thing, but it still works for those who don't know the background, that, then it's doing something right. So that's pleasing. And then to continue the thing with the sequels in... Um, Scream 2, and then I agree with you, Russell, I felt that Scream 3 over got, got itself tied up in knots. And I, I always remember when the reveal of the killer takes place in Scream 3, my reaction was, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and then my... Uh, yeah, so I think it's a... I guess my response, I'm closer to where you are, Russell, it's... Not a friend. It's a franchise I have lot. I have affection for, but I don't have 
but I don't have passionate feelings for, as it were. And as a result, um, I neither love any of it nor hate any of it. Um, but I always do think it's a fascinating film to have in the conversation. And speaking of conversation, <laughs> I want to play a game. Okay, right. This is the Tomatometer game. You may have come across a version of this. Oh. If any of you, if either of you have a tab open for Rotten Tomatoes, close it now. Thank you. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the five screen films, and I want you to tell me what you think is the critics' score for each one. And then the winner will be whoever is closest. Okay, so I've got the scores in front of me. Um, now, a quick caution, um, listeners. Um, Rotten Tomatoes isn't an in, a real indicator of, of quality um, or even of um, critics' perspectives because the way Rotten Tomatoes works, provided a film gets like over three stars or over five out of 10, it's classed as fresh, Okay. So don't take Rotten Tomatoes as anything more than an, an, an amusing little cultural oddity. It's in no way definitive, but it is rather fun. So that's why we're going to do this. I pinched this idea from uh, one of my other favourite podcasts, The Sequelizers, because um, they do this with uh, the films they look at. So I thought we'd have a crack at it too. Okay, so Scream, the original, 1996. Russell, what do you think is its score on the Tomatometer? 82. Okay. James? Um, I'm going to go 91. Okay. All right. Scream 2 from 1997. Russell? Mm. I think I went too low with Scream. Oh, that's fine. Um, 80. Go with 80. Okie dokie. James? Um, 84. 84. Okay. <clears throat> Scream 3 from 2000. What would you say, James? Oh, me first. Um, yeah, I thought mix up it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I'm going to take a stab at 36. Boom, Tish. Stab, like it. <laughs> uh, Russell? 31. Okay. Hmm. All right. Scream 4 from 2011. Russell? 54. 54. Okay. And James? 52. 52? 52. Okie dokie. There we go. There and there. <laughs> okay. And last and... Well, maybe it's least. We'll find out. Um, <laughs> Scream 2022, because I guess we're not calling it Scream 5. Russell? 71. 71. And James? 80. 
Katie. Okay, right. Now, this is all jolly fun. Um, <laughs> okay, let me see. So now I need to... Right, okay. Um, well, uh, Russell actually wins this. Ooh. By, yes. Because three of your picks, of, of your um, estimations, were closer to the actual score. So for Scream, Russell said 82, James said 91. The actual score is 79. Oh, surprisingly low. Mm. Yeah, that was beloved. I'm really surprised at that. Well, it gets weirder. For Scream <laughs> 2, Russell said 80, James said 84. Pretty close. The actual score is 81. For Scream 2, actually higher than Scream. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Scream three. Uh, Russell said 31. James said 36. James was closer. 41. Okay. Oh. Higher than I thought it would be. Mm. Oh, higher than either of you thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, Scream four. Russell said 54. James said 52. The actual score is 61. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, higher than you expected. And then for Scream 22, that's a long franchise. <laughs> um, <laughs> Russell said 71 and James said 80. James was closer because the score is 78. So there we Almost have the it. the same as, as the previous Scream. As the original. As the yeah. original. That's yeah. very fitting considering. <laughs> oh, is it? Well then, James, why don't you tell us a bit about Scream 2022. Okay, so the fifth Scream film arrived and people have been dubbing it Five Cream because that's a perfect place to put the five. But <laughs> it's called Scream as in tra the tradition of David Gordon Green's Halloween and Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Interesting. And I feel this film arrived with a bit of trepidation because this is the first film in the series that wasn't directed by Wes Craven after his tragic passing in 2015. And I mean, the directors chosen Matt Bettinelli, Oplin and Tyler Gillett, who gave us the wonderful Ready or Not. It's not like they were a bad choice, but it, the part of it just felt a bit not wrong, but uncertain without that guiding force as he was in the previous films but after the screen screening I breathed a sigh of relief because what the directors crafted I felt was a worthy successor to what Wes Craven had previously given us and for this instant in Scream it sets its sights on tackling legacy sequels like as I mentioned before David Gordon Green's Halloween and Ian Costa's Candyman and it also takes an interesting, some interesting turns by addressing the toxicity of fan culture and even taking time to deconstruct the screen films themselves. I feel it does fall into the legacy sequel tropes that it itself points out, but it's heartwarming to see Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox and David Arquette back in their roles a decade since audiences last saw them. And you feel the history in their world-weary appearances. So they're back and like, oh, this shit again. But, but that's from the character's perspective. 
not the actor's perspective in the way you get with Bruce Willis films for the past decade or so. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember Breach, Vincent? Sadly, I do. Mm. I also remember Murder in the Tall Grass, Murder which I didn't. Tall Grass. Oh, is that the Megan Fox one? Yeah. That sounds like an awful film. <laughs> oh, it is. It really is. <laughs> but it's not all about the returning cast because this new screen film has a brand new cast. And they do what I feel they do good jobs in their roles, but the standouts are easily um, Jack Quaid delivering a hilarious turn as the boyfriend of our protagonist who's just rolling with the punches as he comes back to this town while horrific things are happening. And Jasmine Savoy Brown playing the horror aficionado hot on the heels of performances in Yellow Jackets and Sound of Violence, which both premiered to quite good acclaim. And what's happening here with this series, it feels like what's happening now is the natural progression from where the returning characters are at this point to how it grapples with the past. And I feel it does so with genuine humour and tension delivered. There's one bit which just plays with what you expect from jump scares. And it feels like it's working so well with audience expectations. And I do believe that Wes would have been proud of what's happened with this film. Um, but that's just me. What did you guys think of it? Uh, I had a total blast this film. Again, as I said, I don't have a huge fondness for screen films. I'll watch them, but uh, I think they mean more for other people. And I came into this, I had a terrific amount of fun. I thought the kills were great. I thought there were some great tense sequences. There's a wonderful bit in a hospital, which you can tell it's the directors of Ready or Not because it is lensed and shot in a way that's just fantastic. Um, Yeah. Jack Quaid and Jasmine Savoy Brown are both terrific. I have some issues in that I think that the script doesn't quite land the uh, the new teenagers for me. That I think that the legacy characters are all fine because they're lived in these roles. They know what to do. Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette have been here before many times. They know what they're doing. And I think that our, our new final girl and her boyfriend and her sister are all really interesting characters. But then there's a roster of uh, shall we call them teen victims because most of them do turn out to be teen victims that are just I think there's one too many grouping in this film for that to land but yeah I, I kind of measure a screen film with how I feel about the finale and I'm not going to give away what happens at the end because as I was told by Ghostface at the start of this film don't give anything away I won't do that um, I, I measure a screen film on its finale and this finale was uh, a heaps of fun there's a great moment when something is revealed and i was like oh this is really fun i really am enjoying myself um yeah and my that my one of my biggest issues the third is that by the finale it's all a bit ridiculous and uh silly and the silliness of scream kind of takes it over whereas in the first and second the finales uh take what works and brings it to its proper conclusion and the fourth, while I have, uh, I didn't love the first half, the second half is great and uh, really plays into its point. And this plays into its point well. Um, 
Yeah, I also think that it's better, uh, it's more successful at reprimanding its fans for wanting another one than the latest Matrix. Because the latest Matrix is not dissimilar in that it spends a portion of its time reprimanding its audience for wanting to be there. And I think that uh, Scream does it better for me. But yes, it's not a perfect film, but it is a fun film. I really enjoyed my time with this film. And I paired it up with Licorice Pizza. And sadly, this was the one I far more enjoyed. So, you know, take what you will from that. Uh, Vincent, how is this for you? Well, I'm sorry to be the negative Nelly here, but I was disappointed. I felt that Scream gave what was expected, but nothing more. Um, At times it was visceral and gory, but it often felt that it was doing things because it was supposed to. It was very much a matter of, right, here's where we do this, and here's where we do this. So it felt like the filmmakers, they knew what they were doing, but what they were doing was quite laboured. I felt there were too many winks. It didn't scare me. Occasionally I chuckled, but more often I rolled my eyes. Just give a couple of examples vaguely. Um, There's a scene when one character reveals to another a particular thing about themselves. There's a revelation. And I felt that was handled very creakily. It's like, okay, film, pause. Allow me to sit down and tell you, character, and you, audience, here's a thing about me. And I felt, this feels very artificial. Um, I thought that the whodunit aspects of the plot, including the red herrings, um, as well as the explanations and the final act revelations were similarly quite clunky. Um, uh, the In the same way that when I, my response to the revelation of the killer in Scream 3, my response to the revelation here was on the lines of, oh, you, okay. Um, Another case in point, I think, was the mechanical direction. James referred to a scene where the film kind of plays with expectations of jump scares. I think I'm talking about the same scene. It's the one that has a bit of a psycho reference. Um, Yeah. Okay. It's nice we can all we'll talk about the thing by talking around the thing. <laughs> um, but there are so many um, fake outs. You know, door closes, no one there. Door opens, no one's there. No one's there. Again and again. And I got to the point where I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, kill someone, please. <laughs> and I think what's furtherly disappointing for me is I love Ready or Not. Okay, that was my, you know, my highlight of Fright Fest 2019. And I really felt that Scream lacked the wit. It lacked the humor. It lacked the handling of gore. It lacked the shock value. Now, I don't have any problem with fan service. As I mentioned before, I loved Spider-Man, No Way Home. And I think that used fan service as an organic part of its whole. But in Scream, the fan service felt laboured and, like the film as a whole, mechanical. So, yeah, sorry for me, it was a disappointment. At least you tried it. <laughs> and you haven't revealed who the killer is, so you have you've mm. done the right thing. <laughs> um, Vincent, do you want a sequel? And I guess a wider point, um, where do you summon slashers? Are you, uh, how do you feel about a slasher in of itself? Okay, well, to answer your first question, no, I don't really want a sequel. I think it's like, although I tell you what, if we do have a sequel, I do know how I want it to start. 
but if I say how I want to start, that would be a bit of a spoiler. So I won't. Uh, yeah, I'd like to That's see one of. Up. I'd like to see one of the um, recurring characters oft in the opening act, like at the start of the third one. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and how indeed. do you feel about stashes? Um. <sighs> I think partly because I came to all of these things quite late because Scream was the first slasher I saw and I saw, I think, Halloween for the first time a few years after that. And I've said on this podcast before, I am not a fan of Friday the 13th and, sorry, not a fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I have put myself through most of the Friday the 13th and Halloween franchises and <laughs> I don't know why I keep going back to them. There must be a masochist in me. Um, yeah, so I guess overall my feelings about slashers are not very strong. I recently watched Urban Legend, and that was <laughs> laughable. Yeah, laughable is the best mm. way to describe it. <laughs> I mean, the roster of slashers that came after Scream, very yeah. few of them are actually great. I mean, I watched I Know What You Did Last Summer, and it's... Oh, the only reason I want to watch the sequel is because apparently Jack Black is in it and he's terrible in it. So I'm kind of intrigued by that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think what I do, what I will say about slashes is I like them when I like them if they're scary. Okay, I want to be actually scared. Um, Halloween, I do find genuinely frightening, and I thought actually the 2018 Halloween was too, and the original Scream and Scream Two are scary. I want a slasher to be scary. And when they are, and when they just become all about the kills, then it's like, I'm just waiting for somebody to get stabbed here. I'm not scared. I'm not bored either, but mm -hmm. I'm closer to bored than I am to scared. Is it a problem, I guess, with modern slashes is that because so many are from existing franchises, we find ourselves uh, rooting for the killer to mm. off these characters. So we never quite connect the characters in the same way because I, I, I say I had fun with Scream, but I didn't really connect with the new victims. Um, I did like I Freaky. Loved so, yeah, but Freaky, Freaky was great. So Freaky, it's it's got it's taking the slasher genre and then adding something to it. In that case, it's Freaky Friday. Same with um, Happy Death Day, of course, same creatives. Mm. Add in Groundhog Day into the mix of a slasher. And so I guess you'll, you've either got, you take the slasher genre and you add something to it. So maybe we need to have a slasher on a bus that can't slow down <laughs> that might be fun I'm sure, been, I'm sure there must have been a slasher set on a plane probably i mean there's been <laughs> in a lot of places or we or the slasher is treated with such rever revenance because that's my issue with um the current new halloweens is as much as i enjoy the first of the new batch and i thought halloween kills had some great kills there's slightly too much about it about how Myers is something else, something other. And the slasher for me is only really interesting when it's someone quite human killing people. And we don't really get the reason why they're doing it. I mean, yeah, the thing I like about screen films are the Agatha Christie quality, but then we do get a monologue from our killer telling us exactly why they're doing it. And that's less interesting than the fact that in the first Halloween, Myers is a small boy who stabs his sister to death and then comes back to his hometown to kill again. And that's really interesting for me. And there's no more explanation to him beyond that. Strip it down or add something. Yeah. Fair point. Uh, James, do you want a sequel? 
as much as I like this film, I don't want them to, if they have to do a sequel, leave it enough time, like a, at least a decade or so, when there's been more horror tropes and new kinds of films which they can comment on and build into their film. I don't want, I mean, <sighs> Scream 2 were, came out the year after the first Scream film, but it's not like horror sequels were a new thing then, so they had plenty to draw on, to comment on. I don't know what else they could comment on if they do a sequel quite close to this new film. I'd rather don't do it, or if you do, wait. I don't want it to be rushed out. I want them to have something to play with. Hmm. I know how they could do it. It's... Uh... We've got so we've, we've so if, if the Scream franchise goes through every sort of incarnation of a franchise, original film, sequel, threequel, another one later on, requel, we need the Scream cinematic universe, which we don't need. <laughs> <laughs> Interconnected screamer thing. Bleh. The multiverse of screamness. Well, that that at least has potential. I can, see it. I can see it now. Doctor Strange suddenly emerges and say, "Nope, bad idea." <laughs> <laughs> I feel they should have ended it the same way they end Twenty Two Jump Street, which we've got all the stab sequels, which got like thirty stab sequels and saw a little snippet of each, and that would have been hilarious. I mean, it would have killed off Screen because you couldn't follow up as you can't follow Jump Street again after that. But that's how you should have ended this one. I mean, Jump Street, they tried a Men in Black crossover. Oh, so how hilarious would that have been? I don't think it would have worked mm. in the slightest, but I'm just like, I really wish they tried it more than they did. So if they did do that for the Scream series, imagine if they tried to follow up with like a Nightmare on Elm Street crossover or a Chucky crossover or something. Well, we've had Freddy versus Jason. I suppose we could have. Yeah. Could we have um, Michael versus Ghostface? Ghostface is not going to put up a fight against Michael I Myers. I know he's going <laughs> to fall. He's going to fall down. Ghostface would kneel before Myers. We <laughs> almost got a Candyman versus Leprechaun film in the late nineties. <laughs> oh, oh yeah! Tony Todd just said no fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we've landed where two of us dug it and one of us was not so much into Scream. I think that's fair. Oh, James, what's your overall feeling about slashes? I think it's a subgenre which it's so easy and to pump them out and do them cheaply. And they can often feel like they crowd the genre. But... I like them when they're done really well. Like, give me a Halloween, give me a Black Christmas. I like A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I'm the only one in this group of us, but <laughs> that's my cross to bear. <laughs> but do it right, and I think you got something great. But the problem is just all the other ones which surround it. I don't care about I know what you did last summer. Um Oh, and in the sequel, Russell, Jack Black apparently plays a Rastafarian. I mean, it makes me want to watch it even more. I mean, that sounds <laughs> like a terrible choice. <laughs> I recently found um, the Faculty of Horror podcast did um, a series of commentaries on the <laughs> I Know What You Did Last Summer series. 
Um, I've only seen the first one and I thought, you know, I don't, I can't be bothered to watch the second and third, but I'll listen to the commentary of someone essentially <laughs> ripping the piss. That'll do. <laughs> and it did, and it did the trick. This isn't funny, Amber. When you like to play a game, Tara. Well, as Vincent ended that with a recommendation for a podcast, why don't we give our recommendations of this episode? Why don't we give you something old, new, and something not a movie to sink your teeth into? So shall we start with something old? Let's do it. For my something old, I'm going back to the night, the year of 1987 for a slasher film called Stage Fright, which is also known in some territories as Aquarius. Now, this film opens with the image of a woman just in the street. She's smoking. There's a cat who passes by her, someone's shouting her. Then all of a sudden, she gets grabbed from the shadows by this mass killer. And the street residents discover a body, and they react by bursting into a dance number accompanied by a saxophone-playing angel. It's a wild opening. That's because this is all the setting for a shoddy-looking stage musical. And you've got, running it all, this berating director who's desperate to make something sensational while he's clashing with this producer who's intent on protecting his investment. You've got that infighting going on, and you've got the cast members who are trying to sneak out, go to a hospital appointment, or dealing with issues of pregnancy, uh, money, their own things. But this will become the last of the cast worries, because they will end up locked within the isolated theatre with an escaped serial killer. Director Michel Suave goes operatic in the best ways for this slasher film, and it delivers such grisly kills and such funs. And you've got these over-the-top murders enhanced by excellent lighting and score, and it makes for an artful brutality right up to this tense finale. And it's exactly what you want for a film where the killer is wearing a giant owl mask and using a chainsaw at times it's called stage fright it's available on digital on demand and on blu-ray from shameless films and i would recommend it speaking as someone who spent a lot of time in theaters um on, you know, on stage as well as in audiences um i can totally um, identify with that because the horrors that go on on stage um, would do chill the blood. Oddly, I see a connection here to our previous topic because I remember watching Scream 2 and one of the most terrifying things about that was the ridiculous amount of budget that that drama department had. <laughs> like, bloody hell! <laughs> but uh, yeah, stage fright or Aquarius, if, if that floats your boat, <laughs> sounds, well, certainly sounds interesting. My question though is, so when you were describing it there, it sounded like, hang on, is this a slasher musical? Because if it isn't, missing a trick. <laughs> oh, I wish. No, that musical bit is just for that opening number, unfortunately. The only musical tunes you get later on are the sounds of, say, chainsaw revving up or screams of victims. Huh. Nice. So how about our something new? Well, then, allow me to take you to the recent delight that I found, what I found to be a brilliant amalgam of dystopian horror, science fiction, and family drama. I am talking about Mother Android, which just uh, dropped on Netflix this month. 
Now, the synopsis of Mother slash Android is that it is a zombie apocalypse movie, but with androids. And the way I describe this is, it's like a combination of 28 Days Later, A Quiet Place, The Terminator, and In the Earth. Yeah, you're trying to do the mental gymnastics to think, wait, how does that fit together? <laughs> well, if that sounds, if those sound like strange bedfellows, they are, but they make a really great combination. Now, writer, director, Matson Tomlin, um, uses an intimate blend of long takes and jump cuts, grim and earthy tones. So earthy visual tones and grim thematic tones. And all of which serves to bring you very much into the world of the film and experience the fear and distress, the loss, the desperation of the characters and situation. Now we start off with um, this young couple um, played by uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, who we all love, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> playing Georgia and her boyfriend, uh, Sam, played by Algie Smith. And um, so we start off uh, with this young couple. Um, Georgia's just discovered she's pregnant and they head off to a Christmas party. And you get this in indication that it looks perfectly, you know, up to uh, perfectly contemporary, perfectly modern. And then you realize that, oh, there are androids. Um, people have android butlers um, a lot. And then in the best tradition of these things, there's an android uprising. I mean, clearly the designers of these things have never watched a science fiction film. It's like, uh, this is not going to mm. Don't say I didn't warn you. Um, so there's an uprising um, and things get nasty pretty quickly. Um, then after that, we jump forward a little way and Georgia is now quite heavily pregnant, um, but society seems to have largely collapsed. So, um, so, that, so the opening is sort of the 28 days later part. And now we've got, we're into a quiet place part where it's some time after this has happened and they've got to survive and they're surviving in the woods and it's often very earthy. So that's the in the earth part. Um, and so they are moving through the, through the forest. They are trying to find shelter and food and they come across um, some army bases, which is sort of vestiges of civilization. Um, and uh, in the tradition of zombie movies, humans don't turn out to be too great either. Um, and they're trying to get to um, one of my favorite cities to see on screen, Boston. Um, because that's where there's kind of a sanctuary. Um, now, what's interesting is the film, it follows these two characters throughout. So, you know, you're very closely aligned with them. I've never been satisfied with the response of, I didn't care about the characters, or, well, it's all about you got to care about the characters, because the way I see it, characters are a way into the world of the drama, but they are not the only way. Now, in the case of Mother Android, I feel that the characters are warm and they, I get a genuine sense of relationship between them. But what I think is more significant in terms of drawing the viewer in is the style. Um, as I say, it's long takes, it's jump cuts, it's a very, um, con it's a very no uh, consistent visual palette. Um, and I think that, I think, I suspect style is important for others, although they may not be as precious about it as I am. 
Um, there are various sequences in the film that are captured in a single take, and that makes them seriously tense. And then there are some horrific moments that are genuinely scary and often felt. I mean, the whole android uprising and some of the visuals of the androids when they get the skin off their faces is very reminiscent of the horror moments of the Terminator. Um, but on, so there are some horrific moments that are genuinely scary, but also there are some moments that are utterly heartbreaking. And I will say, come the end of this film, I was in tears. Um, but the best thing about it is it's a, it's a very much a COVID era film. Now it was shot recently, production pictures confirm it was shot, you know, with social distancing, masks and so on. Um, and I remember back in 2020, um, the mighty Rosie Fletcher hosted a live stream with various guests, including Rob Savage, the director of Host. Um, now, I tweeted a question to them asking, what did they think would be the effects of the pandemic on horror? And one thing they predicted was the horror of others rather than necessarily of a virus or a disease. So imagine an uprising of things that look human act human, then turn out to be murderous and indeed monstrous. And plus, the actual humans are often pretty hostile. So what we have in an Mother Android is a scenario in which you cannot trust anyone. Plus, it makes some really interesting comments about borders, perceptions of safety and sanctuary. And I think it offers a challenge to the fortification mentality that's become so prominent in the US, especially during COVID. So... Mother Android is in equal parts thrilling, melancholic, brutal, touching, shocking, scary, and devastating. And that is a recommendation from me. Sounds pretty great. I haven't heard of it before, but it sounds mm. pretty great. And the combination of films you said early on, I was like, I like all those. I like all those bits. Goodness, that sounds excellent. Well... Maybe, maybe you'll check it out and, uh, well, I'm sure you will check it out, but then you'll come back and say, dude, what the hell? <laughs> it was rubbish. <laughs> and our final recommendation, our something not a movie, is links back into Scream because one of the stars of Scream, one of our stands out of Screams is in this TV show, is Jasmine Savoy Brown and she's in a show called Yellow Jackets. Now, you may have heard of Yellow Jackets. It's kind of got this... Uh, a lot of attention has been, is, is on it right now in horror circles and on Twitter and on Facebook. It seems to be talked about a lot. So I checked it out because also my sister recommended it to me. And the last TV show she recommended to me was Squid Game. And I had quite a bit of fun with that. And this is terrific. This is a terrific, creepy, odd little, little show. It is about a group of high school uh, girls who are part of a soccer team and their plane goes down in the Canadian wilderness. Okay, and they have to survive. And we're told very early on that at some point they're going to resort to, of course, cannibalism. And at the same time, so there's one timeline, which is them when they uh, just before they crash, then after they crash and trying to survive and all the stuff within the forest that they have to grapple with. And then it's a couple of the survivors about 20 years later. Uh, it's in the 90s and it's set today. And things are not okay for those survivors. They're not having a fun time. And I'm not going to reveal too much because the really great thing about Yellow Jackets is there's a lot of like mystery elements to it. It reminded me a lot of Lost and uh, Lord of the Flies. 
both in terms, you know, the break, like a group going so insane when isolated and lost in terms of that. It's a bit silly, which I like, and it has twists and turns and there's these two timelines and so much is going on in it. As well as Jasmine Savoy Brown, we get, yeah, we get Melanie Linsky. We get Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis, a fabulous cast of uh, older ones and a group of teen actors that are all doing great things. Yeah, this is a uh, quite a watch. It's 10 episodes. It's on now. Uh, the, the TV station, not the, the, it's not on right now. I mean, it can be on right now if you go and watch it, but you know. It's on now, and yeah, it's it's got horror, it's got thriller, it's got drama. It's a bit odd. There's some stuff in it that's a bit odd. I'm about halfway through it, and there's all these elements that are a bit like, oh, this is a bit weird. This is a bit odd. I like where this is going. And it reminded me of the early days of Lost before, well, not even before Lost got too convoluted. I've never disliked Lost, but yeah, it reminded me of Lost. There's going to be a second series. You should definitely get in on this now because, yeah, you'll have fun with this. This is... A terrific watch and there is nothing scarier than a group of teenage girls together uh having to you, do things to survive <laughs> you had me at lost <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean before, I, I haven't seen the you, last yeah. series of lost but the first five i really like and i haven't watched six before i don't know why but i should at some point <laughs> Before you mentioned Lost, I was wait- expecting you to do so. <laughs> so, but it's more than just cold Lost, right? Yeah, it's more than just that. It's more than just it's like Lost because it's about a group of survivors of a plane crash, yeah. and no one is coming to save them. And also that it has uh, two timelines running simultaneously. But mm. its mystery is not like Lost. It's more folk tinged in its horror than lost is Ooh, uh, now yeah. i'm really sold <laughs> yeah they're stuck in a forest and there's no it's a forest and so the evil is in the soil sometimes oh, back to in the earth yeah so yeah no i i am having great a great time with yellow jackets i watched uh, i woke up early one day and watched two episodes in a row fairly early and even though i was a bit sleep deprived i was like this is fun i'm having fun right now being awake at four in the morning this is okay <laughs> there's another time when you had one of your kids with you who wouldn't sleep and it's like i'm just gonna hold you here or were you just oh anyway? no no my kids yeah no they're past the age when i can watch nasty things with them and they not be affected by it which is a shame because when <laughs> kids are really young you can watch whatever you want around them they don't really <laughs> care <laughs> uh, so that's our recommendations for you we've got two films and a TV show. And yeah, I think you should go off and watch all of those. I'm particularly excited for the two films recommended because I've seen neither of them and they both sound like really interesting works of genre. Mm, yeah, I'm uh, certainly intrigued by Stage Fright. And I was already uh, vaguely interested in Yellow Jackets and now I'm thoroughly interested in Yellow Jackets. Yeah, the right people online are saying that Yellow Jackets is worth watching. The same people who told me to go off and watch Malignant and I had fun with Malignant, so... You know, me too. <laughs> the question is, what really happened out there? Like any hot blood We scavenged. We starved. After they rescued us, I lost my purpose. That's us for another month. James, where can people find you and what are you up to? 
in your writing and other stuff? Well, you can find me over at Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. My articles, reviews, podcast appearances are all over at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. By the time this episode goes out, I should have a review of Scream Out and other stuff. Um, oh, aren't I being vague? Um, just check it out. <laughs> How about you, Vincent? Well, you can find me and then find me again because they always come back um, on Twitter and letterboxed at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. You can go to Bloody Good Screens for the reviews I write, as well as the Critical Movie Critics um, for my reviews there as well. And before too long, and by the time you good people are listening to this, I should have a review out of the lovely two-disc edition of Sensor, which is so jam-packed with extras that you'll be glad none of them were censored. And Russell, and, where are you? Well, as for me, you can find me on Twitter, Russ Loves Movies, and that's where I post all my, uh, any writing I do. So there's a couple of reviews I've done recently for Buddy Good Screen, uh, any podcast appearances I have, and my own podcast, Not Just For Kids, which both James and Vincent have been on in recent weeks. One has dove into the works of Martin Scorsese with The Departed and Hugo. The other one, it was George Miller with Bay Pig in the City, which is an odd film, and Mad Max Fury Road. And then uh, very soon I'll be starting a series all about musicals, which is terrific good fun. When I'm not watching, you know, people being horribly killed, I'm watching some stonkingly good old-fashioned musicals. I watched Sound of Music the other day, and I had a great time with it. I then watched Jewel, Spielberg's fantastic little thriller, and I was like, oh, yeah, I have multiple sides. So, yeah. Come and join us over at Not Just For Kids. We watch and talk about some eclectic films. <laughs> and that is us for another month. Thank you so much for coming on down to see our recommendations, to hear our views on things like Scream and the awards season. And we'll be back next month with even more views and opinions and reviews. We'll be watching even more horror and genre stuff. And you should too. So in that time, go off and watch some terrific things. And be awesome, all of you.